This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's O Ship. And this week, I've got a new guest coming on, Uncle Brett Walters. And, and Brett spent his entire life in Silicon Valley. He's been an entrepreneur. He's been an executive. He's been an investor. And today, he teaches entrepreneurship at Stanford University. And he runs the Fourthly Startup Accelerator and also coaches startup CEOs at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship. He's successfully raised capital multiple times in his career. And the entrepreneurs he's worked with have raised quite literally hundreds of millions of dollars in capital. And as an entrepreneur in his own right, he was the founder and CEO of Art Machine, the co-founder of Metagraphic, and the CEO and, and eventually the chairman of Tivix. Uh, he's been on the board uh, of the Stanford University Graduate School of Education, and he's been chief mentor of the European Innovation Academy. So beyond being a successful entrepreneur, the thing that stands out most to me with Brad is his willing to teach and help others all around the world. He's helped companies grow at a macro level, but he's also been leaning into coaching individual founders through their personal growth, which is why we're going to call today's episode Growth Without Boundaries. And with that, here we go with another week of O-Ship. I can't wait for you to meet Fred. Brett, welcome to Ship. How are you? Thanks very much, Freddie. Good morning. Glad to be here. Good morning. I appreciate you doing the early phone call. I think it's uh, you know, seven, seven a.m. is your time. So, yeah, right, yeah. So you're up to eight now, so not quite, not quite so bad. It's all good. I've, had, I've got my coffee, <laughs> yeah. so I'm good. Well caffeinated, perfect. <laughs> so, you know, I'm just getting to know you. I hope my intro uh, did did you justice. But it'd be really great if you could uh, share a little bit of your background, kind of pre fourthly, uh, kind of set that foundation of your entrepreneurial background for any of our audience that may not have had a chance to meet you before. Uh, so I've spent my entire life in Silicon Valley. And so, you know, I've uh, kind of had a front row seat to watching Silicon Valley go from being Santa Clara Valley, the kind of sleepy agricultural valley that I grew up in, to being the Silicon Valley of today, global hub of entrepreneurship and innovation, right? And so along the way, I've, you know, I've been pretty immersed in the world of startups. Three, three times I've been through the process of founding a company, raising capital, being a CEO, eventually managing an exit. Sometimes the exits have been uh, fun and satisfying, and sometimes they've been slightly more challenging, but, you know, that's that's life an entrepreneur. And as you said, today, I'm just kind of all in on helping other entrepreneurs that I uh, you know, teach entrepreneurship at Stanford and uh, coach startup CEOs in the largest startup accelerator program for social ventures, people who are trying to save the world. And then I run a small private uh, startup accelerator program of my, of my own, fourthly. So I'm uh, I'm all in on helping Helping entrepreneurs, Freddie. Love it. And, and by the way, I know it sounds ridiculous, but people talk about Silicon Valley so, so, so much that I think you actually start to believe it isn't like an actual town name, but people forget. <laughs> See, was it, and to your point, actually an a- agricultural uh, town with Santa Clara beforehand. I think that's, uh, it's, it's, easy to, it's easy to forget the history of this area that people associate so much with investment in technology. I would say that if I could, even though I've, I've enjoyed my career, if I ever get a time machine, I'm going to go back to uh, the mid-1970s and I'm going to buy up prune orchards and apricot orchards in Mountain View. 
That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I think because where so you can sell them to Google one day for a fortune. Exactly because where where Google sits today, I probably could have bought that land for five hundred bucks an acre. <laughs> Unreal! Isn't that amazing? It's just wild, wild when you think about it. So you know, as I, when I was uh, re, you know researching you and prepping for this uh, the episode today, one of the things that really amused me uh, in your own words, you described yourself as a teacher guy. Uh, at, at Stanford University, and I thought that was uh, pretty entertaining. Uh, how, how did you end up going from you know the entrepreneurial side of this to getting an opportunity to be a lecturer at, at uh, Stanford? Well, like all things, like most things in life, it was just pure uh, pure serendipity. Uh, I happened to I happened to be on a board with a guy who was at Stanford, and uh, he mentioned to me one day that they needed a uh, a new lecturer to talk about entrepreneurship and. I said, well, I, you know, maybe I could help out. And one thing led to another. So here I am. I, uh, I've had the opportunity to teach some people at the Miami Ad School and, and do some yeah. kind of guest guest appearances. Uh, would, would you, would, do you enjoy it out of interest? I assume you love it. Oh, I enjoy it a lot. Yeah. And my, my commitment there is very low. I teach one, I teach one course every other quarter. So yeah. it's a super, that's, super that's low commitment. So and, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I love it. You know, and there's nothing, nothing like being around smart young people. Yes. Yeah. Well said. Especially the, the, the older I get, the more I want to hang around smart young people. I don't want to hang around people my age. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> I've definitely got a question for you on that front uh, since, <laughs> since you've gone there. But I'd, lo- I'd love to ask, what's, what's, given that you the experience you have got, what's, what's the most important lesson you think you've been able to teach uh, any of your students? Well, this will actually tie in pretty well to the title of your show, Freddie. You know, the, the life of being an entrepreneur is a, it's a roller coaster life, right? That, that, you know, in the morning you win some big customer deal and in the afternoon you, you know, lose some big customer deal, right? So it's a lot of ups and downs. And today there's this concept of, of mindfulness, right? And I was talking, talking to a uh, faculty member at Stanford one day and she was explaining to me the concept of, uh, of mindfulness. And, and she explained it to me this way. She said, you know, the, the great American mantra is, oh, shit meaning mm-hmm. something something happens and we immediately attach negative judgment to it. He said, My, mindfulness means shortening that to just, oh. So when things happen, acknowledge them, but don't attach judgment to them. And I like that. And so I tell my, you know, I tell my students that it's definitely one of the things that I wish I had understood earlier in my career, because, mm-hmm. you know, to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to maintain an even keel, right? You have to not get too mm-hmm. high and too, or too mm-hmm. low. And so this notion of, you know, when things happen, you know, don't, don't attach judgment to them, just acknowledge them, figure out what learnings there are there, and then push forward, I think is a, is a key part of the entrepreneurial mindset. I love that. Uh, and I'll have to have a, a, a sequel show now called O. Oh. But I think it's such a fair point. And, and one of the things I, I think I've seen uh, some entrepreneurs that I've had an opportunity to work with over the years, they, they get themselves exhausted uh, from, uh, you know, whatever challenge they, they may be having. They, you know, you don't sleep. You find yourself thinking about things um, kind of 24-7 or you kind of wallow in, in you know, some defeat. And, and the reality is it's just a distraction. And I think, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're working in a professional environment or you're a leader, you know, this ability to kind of just shake stuff off. And, and uh, it's like, you know, you almost think like soldiers, you know, you can't, you got to get back to that, got to get back to the battle. Sometimes you can't, you, know, you can't sit and, and kind of wallow in self-defeat. Exactly I think this right. is really, really important. If you can fix it, uh, fix it, 
you know, and, but if you can't fix it, you can't sit and can't sit and harbor on it. No, um, that's right. There's no, there's no value in moping under your desk. And, mm. and especially if you're CEO, uh, you know, your most important job is to lead the team mm. and, you know, and, and moping under your desk is not doing a very good job of leading the team. Sometimes one can't help but wonder if, you know, having a short memory span is uh, on site yeah, right. you know, is a, <laughs> a sure. good thing. You know what I mean? For, so, for like, sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not going to get bothered by that. I, you know, I've always joked with my own, and you know, we're both, both serial entrepreneurs. I've always kind of joked that, you know, I, I think I, whether I'm, I, I don't know if I'm a serial masochist or just, you know, too, too stupid to realize uh, that I shouldn't keep jumping into these things. But I don't get, I don't get hung up on that, uh, on the history. But that's a great, great analogy. I appreciate, appreciate the story. So, you mentioned this earlier, how you love being surrounded by by all these you know, great, bright young people, especially mm-hmm. in an organization like Stanford University. What would you say is the most important thing you've actually learned from your students? So the inverse, as you've been around all these great, bright young people, how, how have they impacted you and what have you learned from them? Wow, such a great question. You know, the nice thing about being young is, you, you know, you, you kind of see the world as having boundless opportunity. And, you know, later in life, you kind of are more focused on, you know, your family, your kids, your grandkids, Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, whatever. And so I think that, you know, I I think that that for me, that's probably the number one thing that I get from being around smart young people is that, Mm -hmm. you know, being able to once again, see the world as being filled with boundless opportunity Mm -hmm. because it is, it is. And I honestly think that one of the things that makes 2022 so awesome is that there is more entrepreneurial opportunity today than Mm -hmm. any other time in history. Just a ton of opportunity right now Mm -hmm. that, you know, through, through my career in Silicon Valley, there was typically one opportunity wave at a time, right? Mm -hmm. We went through, we went through the semiconductor wave and then we went through the personal Mm -hmm. computer wave and then we went through the internet wave and then we went through the, through the mobile social wave. And each one of those lasted, you know, 10, 12, 15 years. And then we were on to the next wave. But right now, there are, you know, five or six really big salient waves of opportunity going on at the same mm-hmm. time. You know, we've got AI and machine learning, right? That's a whole wave of opportunity of its own. We've got the whole autonomous vehicle uh, thing. That's a whole wave of opportunity of its own. We've got all the medical technology, uh, biotech stuff, a whole wave of its own. Mm-hmm. Some people think crypto is a whole wave of its own. This week, maybe that looks a little dicier. Last <laughs> 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 week, oh shit! <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Do you, you know when you when you think about the um, uh, your last twenty years uh, in Silicon Valley specifically? You know, do you feel like there was there was these similar number of waves going through them twenty years ago, or was it more software? It was really more the central the central the software then. I guess software is a broad umbrella, but I just wonder how you know how you feel like it feels different from maybe how it did then. Yeah, well, as I said, I it kind of feel as if there was one wave at a time through my career, mm-hmm. and that right now we have multiple waves. So that's mm-hmm. the that's the salient thing. Yeah. What what, what, do you, what out of interest? What do you think has been the 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 allure of Silicon Valley that's continued to draw in people for so many years? Yeah. Well. Entire books have been written on this topic. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of reasons why this one agricultural valley became what it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the three great universities is definitely part of it. So we got mm-hmm. Santa, we have Stanford University, University of California at Berkeley, and then Santa Clara University, which is mm-hmm. the smallest, but it's the oldest university in California. Mm-hmm. So those three universities, a big part of it. 
you know, honestly, the weather is a big part of it. That, you know, with, <laughs> Fair enough. You know, the, weather, the, weather, the weather around Palo Alto really is just pretty much perfect. In the 60s and 70s, kind of as Silicon Valley was getting going, most of the engineering jobs in the United States were on the East Coast, where, you know, where it's miserable and cold in the winter. Uh, and the fact that all of a sudden you could get an engineering job and move your family to a place where the weather was awesome was a big, you know, was a big, was a big draw. But I, I, I have a whole lecture that I give on the history of Silicon Valley. Oh, very cool. And I, uh, and I, and I finished that lecture by answering the question you just asked, which is, you know, why did Silicon Valley happen? What's the, what's the secret sauce, right? What's the secret sauce? In the way, in what I say is that there's all these different reasons, but to me, it distills down to one thing. And that one thing is a culture of reinvestment. Reinvestment, not only of financial capital, but also reinvestment of intellectual capital, right? Mm. And, you know, it happened when Jane and Leland Stanford decided to leave all the money that they had made as entrepreneurs, leave all that money to create a new university for others. It happened when uh, the uh, dean of the Stanford School of Engineering, Fred Terman, started investing in some of his grad students to create startups. And most famously, he invested in Dave, Pack Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett as they finished their studies and founded HP. And, uh, you know, it happened when the, uh, uh, the 12 PayPal founders who founded a company, uh, a year and a half later, they sold the company for $2 billion. So... Even though there's 12 of them, you you know you split two billion dollars 12 ways. That's still a lot of money, right? Yeah. And you know those guys, those the PayPal founders, the PayPal mafia, as we call them. Yeah. You know they could have easily retired and each bought their own island island in the Caribbean, but instead they decided to stick around here and found and fund new companies. And so you look at the list of companies today that were founded by or funded by. The PayPal founders, that list includes Facebook, Affirm, uh, Tesla, obviously. Yeah. You know, there's a whole slew of companies that were funded by and or founded by the PayPal and money. PayPal money. And, yeah. and, and again, that's the culture of reinvestment, that they could have retired, but instead they reinvested that money. And the reinvestment, as I said before, of intellectual capital of, you know, in Silicon Valley, there's this whole culture of, you know, once you've had some experience in your career, you want to become an angel investor and help mm -hmm. other entrepreneurs. Mm. Right. And so to me, that's kind of the one thing that that is the secret sauce that has built Silicon Valley. I think that this this uh, entrepreneurial culture of, you know, to use this reinvestment, the sense of like entrepreneurs yeah. helping entrepreneurs, obviously right. something I'm really passionate about as well. And obviously you, know, you are. Yeah, I feel like a lot of that, that that's a great point that that mindset, I think, uh, certainly made famous by Silicon Valley. And I, and I, I think that culture is really started to drift in different parts of the U.S. You know, in a good way, obviously, you know, started to drift into other parts of the U.S. as well, yep. which I think is, is very exciting. And the, and, and the world. And the world. Yeah. And, and that's a per perfect segue because one of the things I, I really wanted to touch on today was with Fourthly and, and the fact that it has a, a very kind of global nature in terms of uh, how you're attracting people, you know, globally, startup founders, and I think it has to do with that allure of Silicon Valley on some level. And yeah. so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that. Assume that um, anyone listening or watching right now doesn't know anything about Fourthly, and it'd be great if you could just provide some, some context first. Sure. So, uh, so Fourthly is a startup accelerator program that I run, uh, and I limit it to, uh, to just 10 startups per batch. 
so that we can right. spend a, so that we can spend a whole lot of time together. And it is purely Zoom based. And originally, that was because I started it during COVID, <laughs> but now it's become because I love being able to have global participants. And with a with a Zoom based program, you can have global participants because you don't have to fly you have to fly in here to Silicon Valley to participate. And then the other differentiating aspect of Fourthly is that it's non dilutive because you pay to participate, and so yeah. I don't so I, I don't take any equity in your startup. And and you know and partly that's because you know as a as a serial entrepreneur myself, I know how valuable your startup equity is. And, mm-hmm. you know, giving away 7% of your company to somebody else just because they put you through an accelerator program, that's actually pretty expensive capital. Pretty expensive, I agree. Yeah, yeah. so that's fourthly. And the, and the name comes from the fact that the World Economic Forum says that we're now entering the fourth industrial revolution. Hmm. And like uh, so the first industrial revolution was very much centered around London. and had to do with the mm-hmm. steam engine, right? Mm-hmm. The second industrial revolution had to do with electricity and mass production and was around Mm -hmm. Detroit and the other big mass production centers Mm -hmm. in the world. Third industrial revolution was computers, IT, the internet, Mm -hmm. very much much centered around Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. And the World Economic Forum says that the fourth industrial revolution that we're now entering is the merging of the digital, the biological, and the cognitive. Cognitive being AI and machine learning, that stuff, right? And that what makes this industrial revolution different than the previous three is it's not happening around one place. It's happening all over the world. That there are clusters of innovation, clusters of entrepreneurship all over the world today. Mm. And there's been a decoupling of centers of capital and centers of innovation, right? That throughout history, centers of capital and centers of innovation have, have always been coupled going all the way back to, to Florence and the Renaissance, right? The reason that Florence was the center of the Renaissance is that that's where the capital was at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, through my whole career, if you wanted to create a startup, especially a tech startup, you know, you had to locate your startup in Silicon Valley. You just had to, because mm-hmm. that's where the capital was. And, you know, most of the VCs I know, you know, they would say that they don't invest in any company that they can't, you know, drive over and meet with in person anytime. That's mm-hmm. radically changed now. And of course, COVID was a kind of a forcing function for that, but it was already drifting in that direction that, that investors are now investing in companies all over the world because they realize it ain't, it ain't all Silicon Valley today. You know, it's, it's Austin, it's, it's New York, it's, it's London, it's Tel Aviv, it's Florianopolis, Brazil. Uh, there are these clusters of innovation all over the world today. And that's probably the salient thing that makes the fourth industrial revolution different than the previous three. Yeah. What's so interesting, if you think about the the earlier, the first and second industrial revolution, they they required physical things in physical yeah. locations. You could argue that the third industrial revolution created you know, the information age, which then yeah. was effectively the enabler of this of this fourth level. Absolutely. And I and I agree that you know there's all these. It's, it's, for me, it's a combination of democratized access to collaborative technologies that are very inexpensive or literally free. Yep. So it's like, and that enabled, I think, in any part of the world. And then I think, to your point, one of the things I think that came out of uh, COVID, you know, trying to find any any positives out of it, is that there were people that didn't believe that you could be as effective working virtually yep. or remotely. And I think a huge chunk of people said, you know what, the last couple of years, I was either more productive or or as productive, and we don't need it. And, and so they became believers. I mean, a lot of, some people are not not believers. Uh, I, I, on that note, you know, uh, we mentioned the PayPal mafia earlier and Tesla and 
Uh, you know, Elon Musk uh, has obviously been in the news a lot lately since that. I've, no- I've noticed that. I've noticed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe you may have read. <laughs> uh, what, what, what do you think about uh, you know him trying to get everyone back into the office? Do you think do you think uh, being in the office? Or you you do you think remote is fine, or what's what's your take on on in person? Yeah, so. I'm lucky enough to not be running a company today, and so I don't I don't have to make those decisions anymore. I think if I if I was running a company, I think I definitely would would develop some sort of a hybrid work policy Mm -hmm. because I think you know I think there are pros and cons to the remote work Mm -hmm. thing, and um, so I'm generally a believer in remote work. But I think also that there's you know there's there's a certain kind of magic that happens when the team is together that you can't completely replicate on Zoom. I agree with that. I agree with that, especially in group settings. I think the, 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 the hybrid thing is one of the trickiest parts. I'm now starting to advocate for like, you know, virtual and remote works, but I actually think it works way better when 100% of the company is either one way or the other. Otherwise, you always have these weird tensions where no one's quite synced up. So, right. you know, we're at like, uh, whatever, 130 full-timers now and, and never had an office in seven years and it really works for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, but I think if we were a little bit of both, it would be, you know, be, would be a lot harder, frankly. So, uh, you know, when you're dealing with these global startups, what, do you mind me asking, like, if you look at the last couple of years or since you started, is there kind of like a couple of countries that, that you find you tend to work with the most? There's a lot of activity in Latin America right now. Several startups from Latin America uh, participate. And of course, you know we we say Latin America as if that's kind of like one country, but in fact, you know, in fact, Latin America is a huge geography with a yeah. whole bunch of whole bunch of countries. Um, so, in, so in particular, uh, Mexico and Brazil. Mexico and Brazil are the two, by far, the two biggest economies in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting innovation coming out of there but i've also had i've had a couple startups in peru and uh, one in colombia so the interesting thing about latin america of course is that you know in some respects there many of those economies are maybe 20 years behind where where we are and so that's kind of an important inflection point yeah but what an opportunity yeah exactly yeah exactly exactly and there's been a lot of really interesting fintech startups coming come out of latin america and partly that's because two reasons one is Many of the Latin American countries have, uh, you know, two or three bank, big banks that basically control the entire market. And so like all big incumbents, you know, they're slow and not really interested in embracing innovation. And so that provides an opportunity for a fintech to come along and, and you know, disrupt the big, slow legacy banks. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is true throughout Latin America is that there's a very large unbanked community. So in Brazil, I think it's something like 30 or 40% of the population is, is unbanked. And it's because wow. the big, it's because the big legacy banks just have never really cared about serving poor people because you can't make any money from poor people, right? Mm-hmm. They want to, they want to make their money by serving rich people. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just have never made any, any attempt whatsoever mm-hmm. to, uh, to serve the bottom, you know, the bottom third, let's say of the economic spectrum. Whereas, you know, whereas fintechs, because of their low operating expenses, you know, they can come in and serve poor people, right? They can, mm-hmm. you know, offer savings savings accounts and lending programs and all those other financial services products. And that's exciting in two ways. One is it's exciting just because it's a it's an untapped market to be able to suddenly offer financial services to a third of the population that's never had access to financial services before. It's also pretty exciting from an economic development perspective because giving poor people access to financial services can be huge. Oh. 
huge in terms of helping them improve their livelihoods, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you can borrow, if you can borrow a thousand bucks to start your own little business, that's mm-hmm. huge. And I'm interested that the global companies that you're you're chatting with are they are they uh, is it about helping them understand to take the lessons from that you've learned and, and that your advisors have learned from Silicon Valley and apply them in that market, or is it partially about you know, helping them break into the U.S. market? No, it's not so much about breaking into the U.S. market, although it is sometimes about breaking into U.S. U.S. investment. You know, every startup around the world dream you know dreams of getting an investment from a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, right? So, that, yeah, so that so that definitely is on their mind. But it's not typically it's not typically breaking into the U.S. market of customers. It's typically serving their own market of customers. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to put you on the spot again, but if Please. we uh, if we think about the kind of biggest bits of advice uh, you had to give a, a, you know, a global startup going into 2023, assuming that's going to be a little bit of a weird year, what, what would be the kind of, you know, maybe one or two big themes of, of things you've been telling folks to, tr- to prep for next year? Well, the main thing with regard to prep for next year is, uh, is extend your runway. You know, I, I think raising capital is going to be difficult for the next mm, 18 to 24 months. Mm-hmm. And so anybody who's got a 12-month runway right now I think is a world of hurt because uh, the ability to raise capital within the next 12 months is going to be super challenging. Mm -hmm. So that's my number one piece of advice is extend your runway. So extend your runway by either reducing expenses or, uh, or get some revenue, or uh, if you can raise some money, then raise, you know, don't go out and raise 12 months worth of money, go out and raise 24 months worth of money. Good, good, good advice. I think for any, any, uh, any startup founder out there. Right. And the the sell and the sell cycles on raising capital right now are, are much longer than they were a year ago. Mm -hmm. Right. That the, you know, year ago, 18 months ago, you know, you could, you know, it wasn't quite this fast, but it was almost as if you could pitch on Monday, get a term sheet on Tuesday and close the round by Thursday. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, that ain't happening right now. It's, yeah. If you, if you can successfully raise capital right now, it's a much longer, more drawn out process. Uh, good, good advice. Funny enough, I'm, I'm just going to start up company that I'm, I'm working on right now. And uh, we're just starting to think about fundraising. I think this is, I mean, it's very top of top of mind for us yeah. as well. So, uh, Brett, you know, for super great insight uh, on from from all the different aspects of your your career. One of the other things I mentioned in the intro to the show was that uh, you also you know kind of coach CEOs uh, individually as well. So you've got kind of like your kind of macro level teaching that you do, and, and then you've got I think the I think I include the accelerator in that. But how is coaching uh, you know individual CEOs different from uh, you know, kind of the work that, uh, you know, that you do kind of teaching and lecturing in a, in a group environment. So teaching and coaching are different things, right? Teaching, you know, tr- traditional teaching is is just simply the, the transfer of knowledge. It's the, you know, it's, I'm, uh, I'm viewing your mind as being a, uh, a bank that can store some more stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to provide you some more stuff that you can store in your mind. And, you know, coaching is, is more about asking good questions that will hopefully be helpful. As, mm-hmm. as you think through a process. And I'm especially careful with people who are operating companies in other geographies around the world. I'm particularly careful about not giving direct advice because, you know, I've, I've never run a company in Uganda. So for me to give you advice on how to run your company in Uganda would be, you know, that's, that's probably a stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I can kind of help you think through some stuff. I can ask, you know, what, 
what kind of numbers do we have on customer acquisition cost? Can you explain mm-hmm. to me kind of what numbers we have on that? And, mm-hmm. you know, do we have any idea what the lifetime value of a customer is once we get them? So it's more about asking good questions. In my experience, more about asking good questions rather than giving specific advice. Um, what about, uh, do you feel like you get in on the kind of say, there's like, I think there's nuances to leadership. There's, there's the yeah. side of like, hey, how do we steer the business? And then there's the side of coaching that is like, uh, you know, how do, how do you be a better leader? And I feel like right. those, do you feel like those kind of theories are those more universal or those like universal human truths that transcend cultures theoretically? Yes. I'm hesitating only because the characteristics of a good leader probably do vary a little bit by culture. So I'll give you give you a quick example of that. So Harvard did a study a few years ago about the in diff, in different cultures around the world, different social structures around the world. To what extent is it considered appropriate to push back on to question somebody who is of a higher social status than you are, right? Mm-hmm. And so in countries like Scandinavia, you know, it's considered perfectly perfectly fine to question somebody who's at a higher socioeconomic status than you are. And there's other countries like, let's say, India that are very, very stratified and very kind of caste conscious still mm-hmm. about, you know, pushing back on somebody who's at a higher status. And I thought about this a lot because, you know, part of the unique Silicon Valley culture is that in Silicon Valley, pushback is considered a highly valued thing from your team. In other words, you call a meeting with your team, and you say, here's what we think the goals, here's what I think the goals for next quarter should be. And you want, you want your team to push back, right? That's kind of part of the Silicon Valley culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there are many parts of the world where that would never happen. That, you know, you call your team together and you say, you know, here's what I think the goals for next quarter should be. And the team is supposed to just, just nod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you think that leader, the, you know, kind of leadership skills do vary a little bit by culture, but there's a couple of good books on kind of the, you know, there's four or five uh, well-defined leadership um, styles. And so it's, you know, it, so the right style for you, Freddie, is going to be different than the right style yeah. for Merritt, different than the right yeah. style for me. But I think it is helpful sometimes to kind of look at the different styles and figure out which one is a, is a good fit for, for you. Good, good, good advice and, and very fair. Um, I do want to jump to a question from the audience. So um, Adam Tovum, uh, tuning in via YouTube, uh, he was uh, agreeing that you were uh, very, very right about raising capital in the next mu- uh, you know, 24 months. It's going to be hard. Um, but he's also um, really intrigued about you know, if you see uh, anything else changing in the fundraising landscape, maybe not so much the landscape, uh, the longer runways, but maybe around, uh, let's call it you know, alternative or non-traditional sources of capital, you know, he mentioned crypto, crypto funding, but I think in general, his point was about, you know, do we think the money might come from different places or do you think startup, startup founders should be looking at more yeah. non-traditional sources? Yeah. So first of all, to, to Adam's specific question about crypto, I think crypto is going to kind of be on hold for at least the next few months because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're, we're still trying to figure out what the, what the second level fallout from FTX is going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think... I think anything crypto related is going to be kind of on hold until we figure out how all this shakes out. But to Adam's other question about uh, sources, other sources and structures of capital. Yeah, I think that one of the ways in which 2022 is the best time ever to be an entrepreneur is that there are more different sources and structures of capital than ever before. Mm -hmm. And while most people, 
you know, if you, most people, if they think startup, they think venture capital, right? They think, mm-hmm. you know, if I've got a startup, I've got to, you know, I've got to find myself a venture capitalist. But mm-hmm. in fact, you know, the traditional venture capital model only fits a fairly small percentage of startups that, you know, the traditional venture capital model is, is, is investing in return for equity, right? So I'm buying equity in your company and it's based on binary outcomes. It's based on the idea that your startup will either go bankrupt or it'll have a billion dollar IPO. That's mm-hmm. it. And, you know, and eight out of every 10 companies that they invest in goes bankrupt and the other two have billion dollar IPOs and yeah. they're good. They're happy. Yeah. But it's binary outcomes, right? That that's, you know, they don't want, they don't want to invest in companies that, you know, just kind of do fine for a while because owning equity and that doesn't do them any good. So yeah, this is a go big or go home kind of mentality. That's exactly right. It's like, you know, I always say that, you know, I always say it's like, it's like airplane travel. Airplane travel also has binary outcomes. Either you arrive safely or you die. There isn't anything in between. You know, nobody. I'll try to remember that next time I get on a plane. Nobody, nobody gets a little hurt. Everyone gets a little hurt on an airplane trip, right? You either arrive safely or you die. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And and the venture capital venture capital business is is based on that same set of binary outcomes. Yeah. And you know, so that's fine if you are a Uber or an Airbnb and you just simply want to go big or go home and have somebody just shovel cash into the engine to allow you to scale yeah. at an unnatural pace, which basically was what venture capital lets you do, right? It lets you scale yeah. at an unnatural pace. So that's fine. But there's a whole lot of other companies out there that are perfectly good companies, but they're not a good fit for that model. And so the good news is that today there's all kinds of different sources and structures of capital. You know, I, I did a deal recently that's a, it's a revenue share note. Uh, I put 100 grand into the company in return for a note. And the payments on the note are defined as being 5% of the revenue of the company. So every, so every quarter... I get an email saying, you know, here was our revenue last quarter. Here's your check for 5% of that. And that continues until I get 1.5 times my investment back. And then it's done. So, you know, and, nice, and, and it didn't dilute them. No, no, no equity. Dilution no, that's right. No dilution because it's not equity based. I'm happy because I'm going to get 1.5 times my investment back. Hey, that's yeah. not bad. Oh, yeah. you know, they're happy because uh, they didn't give away any equity. And mm-hmm. it's pretty easy for them to service that node if they just got to build into their spreadsheet mm-hmm. the fact that 5% yeah. of the revenue every quarter is going to me. That's easy to build mm-hmm. into their economic model. And then once it caps out, then I'm gone. They never have to see me again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you're seeing a lot of structures like that that traditional venture capitalists won't do because they're, you know, they're interested in the, in the billion-dollar outcome if, if you have yeah. an IPO. But for angel investors... You know, deals like that make a lot of sense. Good. Uh, good I, actually, I mean, I guess totally understood it's conceptually possible to see one tied to revenue, but I hadn't seen that before. That's really, uh, that's really interesting. Uh, so a great, great answer. Okay. It is that time on the show where I have to ask for your O-Ship story. Uh, for those of you who have never watched O-Ship before or tuned in via our audio podcast, one of the key premises of O-Ship is that we like to ask leaders and entrepreneurs about a moment in their life where maybe they uh, things hadn't worked out as they had planned, whether you know some big decision, maybe it's a business venture, whatever it was, and we'd like to know how people de- dealt with it. Sometimes this may be uh, something that said, you know, it really made me think about how I'm a leader, or make me realize how I approach challenging situations, and it changed me. Sometimes people, uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, 
some inspiring story that made them have a different level of empathy for folks. And sometimes they're just complete ship shows where they maybe they, they were just not very funny when they happened, but really damn funny in hindsight. Uh, I don't, and, and maybe there's categories outside of that, but it's certainly a pattern uh, we've noticed. Uh, Brad, I'm sure you have quite a few of these tucked away, but I, I would love to hear uh, what you think is a, a worthy addition to the O-Ship uh, history of, of yeah. wacky stories we've heard. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of those, Freddie. My, I would say that my, my role in life at, at this point is to be a cautionary tale for others. Good, good. That, I, Dave, we all appreciate you. <laughs> but I'll tell, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one particular story that I think is, and the reason I'm going to tell this one is that I think it's a really, it's it's a really informative story for entrepreneurs today. And here's how the story goes. So I had a startup uh, once where I was super excited about it, and I worked really hard on my pitch deck. I worked really hard. I created the world's greatest pitch deck, and I carefully rehearsed everything so that you know, so that uh, my narrative lined up just perfectly with every single slide. And there was even one section where it kind of appeared to be a live demo because I knew exactly where to click on the, on the screenshots in order to make some stuff happen, right? And so I worked really, really hard on this pitch deck. And I reached out to a buddy of mine who was a VC partner at a, at a fund. And I said, hey, can I, can I come in and just give you my little pitch? I'd love to just get some feedback from you. So I went in and I launched into my carefully rehearsed pitch with my absolutely beautiful slide deck. And this guy loved everything. It's like, you know, he, he practically stood and cheered when I was done with my, <laughs> with my pitch. And he's, you know, and he said, that was awesome. That's one of the best pitch decks I've ever seen. And, um, you know, we're, we're definitely interested in investing. And I walked out of there high-fiving myself about how brilliant I was. <laughs> and uh, next day, I got an email from him that said, um, you know, hey, we're definitely interested. I'd like to have you go and meet with this other VC friend of mine, and we'll see whether he might want to co-invest with us. And I said, cool, awesome. So I went in to see this other VC, and I walked into his office, sure that it was going to be, uh, that I was going to be just as big a success as I was before. Because I tell you, this, this pitch deck, Freddie, this was the best pitch deck in the history of pitch <laughs> decks. Life. Exactly. Tears to the eyes. <laughs> and uh, so I walked into this other guy's office and I opened up my laptop and connected my laptop to his, to his screen. And this other VC goes, close that fucking laptop up. He said, I'm sick and tired of entrepreneurs who come in here and show me pretty pitch decks. What I want to know is, can you tell me using words and words alone, why what you're working on is so interesting that I would want to invest? And I went, but, but, but my pitch deck. <laughs> wow. So the, so the, the reason I love telling that story to, to, to new entrepreneurs yeah. is that, you know, it's so true that you have to be able to tell the story on its own, right? Yeah. That, you know, that ability to tell the crisp, clear and compelling story of what you're working on and why it matters is one of the most important skills for any entrepreneur to have. And you've got to be able to do it without having a f fancy pitch deck, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I love that, that. And that, you know, most people think of pitching as being in the context of raising money. But the reality is that great entrepreneurs are pitching all day long, right? They're pitching for customers. They're pitching for partners. They're pitching as they're trying to recruit employees, right? That, that ability to tell the crisp, clear, and compelling story of what you're working on and why it matters is just a fundamental entrepreneurial skill. 
I love it. Do you think the out of interest? Do you think the first investor knew what you were getting into when he sent you over there, or do you think that was just a fluke? Oh no, he knew exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Go try that again. Good luck. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's amazing. But it's it's such a great it's such a great point. I think you know people need to remember their 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 your pitch is your pitch, and the and the deck needs to be the you know an addition to that it is right. it isn't the pitch you know what i mean and i think people get so reliant on it you know i i think it's uh it's, it's great advice i yeah. the slides the slides aren't the slides aren't going to sell the deal you got to yeah. sell the deal yourself out of interest uh, when you when you did try and get through at that particular time and obviously you're far different person today than you are that in that in that moment uh were you able to kind of get the story out or did it really throw you off the, off the deep end if you know what i mean oh no he he ended up investing so I, oh, that's great. Good, yeah, good, yeah. good. But you're yeah. still a major lesson learned. Oh, yeah. I, I was sweating. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I, I heard that. Was, was, there's a couple of entrepreneurs out there. I think Steve Jobs was another one of the ones that like never wanted to ever see a deck. No, no, it's Jeff Bezos hates decks. Bezos. Yeah, Bez- yeah Bezos. Bezos hates decks. That's right. Bezos supposedly had a no, no slide deck uh, policy at Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's awesome. This was so interesting, Brett. I really, really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, I think that was a perfect way to end today's episode. If people want to find out more about you uh, or follow you or engage you with any of your businesses, what's the best way for people to do that? Probably LinkedIn is the best way, but I'm I'm on all the socials and I'm my my handle on all the socials is just Brett Waters. I'm Brett Waters on Twitter. I'm Brett Waters on Instagram. And that's um, Brett, Brett with one T. Just Brett with one T. Exactly. Brett me. with one T. Brett Waters. I'm Brett Waters on Venmo if you want to send me any money. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Send me some money too. <laughs> uh, that, Brett, that was great. It's so good to you know really get to, to know you a bit more today. I hope we get a chance to meet in person one day. For all of you listening into Earthship right now, whether you're watching the live stream or tuning in via any of our audio podcasts, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a subscriber to Earthship. Uh, you showing up every week to well, you know, watch the show means an awful lot to us. And it's the, it's the energy that keeps us going every week. Um, the best thing you can do to support us is like, give us a like, share the episode with a friend, or if you haven't followed or subscribed, uh, if you could do so now, that would be wonderful. Brett, thanks again for your time. Great to see you. Been a pleasure. And we'll see everyone else next week on OSHIP. The O Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O Ship Show.